When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Bonus episode, For God or the Devil, with Zachary Twomley. Before I begin the interview with Zach, I'd just like to remind everyone that I am, of course, a member of the Agora Podcast Network. I was very honoured to be invited to join, and to join the ranks of some amazing podcasts, like the History of the Papacy podcast. Though obviously the title gives away the main focus of this podcast, it doesn't just look at the popes in Rome, though of course that's a significant chunk of it. It also covers things like Christian heresies, the Great Schism, the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons, that kind of serious academic history. It also has episodes on the Pope Mobile. So don't think that Steve has pigeonholed himself into purely papal history. You can find the history of the papacy everywhere you find good podcasts. Now, on with the interview. Today, I'm excited to speak with Zach Twomley. Zach is behind the When Diplomacy Fails podcast. He's a PhD candidate in history at Trinity College Dublin, and the author of two books, the latest of which, For God or the Devil, has just been released, and is a truly mammoth history of the Thirty Years' War. I'd recommend it to everyone. Zach, thank you so much for chatting with me. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be on your show. I've been following it for a long time, so I'm very excited to join you and to say hello to all your listeners, because I'm one too. Oh, so you can say hello to yourself. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, let's jump right into it. Um, what is it about the Thirty Years' War that you find so interesting? Because you've written a book on it now, you've already done one podcast series on it, and now you're redoing that series. So why why, why the Thirty Years' War? Well, there is honestly so many reasons, but I think that there was something about the Thirty Years' War that kept drawing me back, and I think part of the appeal is that so few people, like, they might have heard of the Thirty Years' War, but they wouldn't know necessarily all the all the details or the broad strokes of it. And the more I looked into the Thirty Years' War, the more kind of captivated I was by all the characters and the stories and the drama. And like, 
as as someone who loves the, dip- the diplomatic aspect of things, obviously, there's just so much diplomacy to chew on in this, and it just keeps me going for hours on end. And even though I did the series and back in 2013 on this and did like 18 episodes, an hour each one, you'd think that would be enough. But no, I used the uh, the 400th anniversary of this war as an excuse to go back into it. And in the process of that, I thought that the book would be a good idea too. So here we are. So in going back and looking at it again, um, there's got to have been new things you found. I mean, it was... Seven years ago, when you first looked at the Thirty Years' War. Sure. And I'm guessing there's a lot more gone into this book and the new series than there was in that initial series. So what new things have you found? Well, that's a very good questions. And really, I was surprised because I just mentioned how much I love diplomacy. But in the first section of this book, I spend a long time talking about like 17th century warfare. And Zach from seven years ago would have groaned at me saying that. But honestly... I found it so interesting to see how warfare changed over the course of the 1600s and also to see how all the different actors reacted to those changes as well. Because I think when I did this the first time around, I only really looked at the parts I thought I'd be interested in, such as diplomacy. This time I still did that, but I also looked at stuff that I kind of avoided the first time around. Because when you're doing a book, you have to cover several bases, even the bases that don't necessarily like appeal to you. So as a result of that, I had to like get my feet wet in areas that I didn't think I'd find all that interesting. But... I really did. Like, stuff with the 17th century warfare, like looking at the details of the weaponry and finally getting to grips with exactly what Gustavus Adolphus did with, like, reforms in technology in artillery and with his infantry and stuff. And it was just so, like... It was like coming across a gold mine and no one else realizing it was there. And I know other academics and other authors have written great books on this stuff, but just for me, I thought wow, there's just so much here. And even now when people ask me to kind of break it down, I find it difficult because I don't want to leave out parts of the story that, you know, really are very interesting. And of course, there's the problem with context as well. You have to explain an awful lot before you can actually like get to grips with the story. But I think hopefully with the book, I strike the balance between giving enough information, but also not overwhelming the the listener or the reader in this case as well. And uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of new stuff. If you want to look at like d- diplomatic examples, I think even though I kind of realized how interconnected everything was, I didn't quite realize it at like the full extent of it. Like so for one, one example I always give is Sweden intervening in the Thirty Years' War. Most people know that that happened if they know about the conflict. But what most people don't know is that in order to intervene, Sweden had to negotiate a treaty with Russia so that Russia would attack Poland so that... Sweden would be free to actually invade in Germany because they wouldn't have to worry about their Polish flank. I knew about that. What I didn't realize was that years earlier when uh, the Transylvanians, now this is me jumping into a lot of backstory, but don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll roll it back and, and explain. But so let's say the Transylvanians were besieging Vienna at one point and the Holy Roman Emperor asks for help and the help happens to come from his brother-in-law, the Poles, the king of the Pole, king of the Poles. And when Poland invades Transylvania then to help out the emperor, the Turks, who are the vassal of Transylvania, then get involved and invade Poland. And Poland has to go through this disastrous war in the early 1620s, purely because the king of Poland wants to help out the emperor. And this is all just brushed over 
it's often not even mentioned, but it just showed to me how these ripples of the Thirty Years' War, they reached so far, like all the way to Constantinople, even though the Turks didn't technically get involved, they, like so many other powers, were indirectly involved in uh, the Thirty Years' War's furies. So you can't really narrow it down. <laughs> that is a roundabout way of me saying that I cannot narrow it down. <laughs> yes, it's all interesting. Yeah. Out of all that, you talked about, you touched on it a little bit, but is there any part of the Thirty Years' War that you, that looking into it and writing about it, that you think is actually underrated? From what people know of the Thirty Years' War, um, what should more people know? Well, I think the Thirty Years' War suffers from what I would like to call, like, not World War II syndrome, in that people look at it <laughs> as a conflict or an event that's so far in the past that it can't possibly resonate with us now, but... Actually, there's a lot of human stories in the war that really do kind of bring it home and really kind of remind us that these people living in the 1600s were a lot like us in a way. Sure, they were more superstitious and religion was more important to them and everything was a little bit less safe, you could say. But they still fought for their beliefs, for their families, for their position and everything else. And one great example of this is a guy who really was kind of central to the conflict in the beginning, Frederick V, the Elector Palatine. And uh, obviously he's a very important character overall, but something that really stuck with me was how he basically lost for the first few years of the war, and he only really started to actually do well once Gustavus Adolphus intervened. And it was just looking at how all of this transformed. So Gustavus Adolphus wins this great battle at Breitenfeld in September 1631, and as a result of that, within a few months, Frederick is playing tennis with the King of Sweden on the ducal tennis court of the Duke of Bavaria. And the Duke of Bavaria at this point had been the arch foe of Frederick and had basically trounced him in every battle. But here is an example of just everything turning around in the space of a battle and, and really just this captivating sight of Frederick playing tennis in the place where his enemy used to uh, used to play tennis himself. But it's just, that, that, that image is just so, it's so human. And there's something about that that, to me, it suggests that you don't always need to know all of the details to be able to get interested in a story. I could tell you loads of facts and, and like numbers and everything. And I'm sure some of your listeners will be interested, but... It's that human story that really draws people in. And I think that the uh, Thirty Years' War contains so many stories like that. And so many, tragically, which we will never really get to grips with. But honestly, to me, I'm just shocked that there hasn't been more films made out of the Thirty Years' War. Because there's so many opportunities to do that. Even with Frederick's story alone, there's so much you could do. I started thinking about how this, how it could work as a movie. And I was just thinking, <laughs> oh, but... Because then Frederick, Frederick's life, but then the viewers won't know how it ends because he dies before it's over. Yeah. So like, they'd have to have a sequel. I think if you were to have a film, sorry, if you were to have a film on the Thirty Years' War, I think in 1632 it, it would it would end, but on a kind of a cliffhanger. So like Frederick V and Gustavus Adolphus both die in 1632. So it makes it look like, oh, the Habsburgs are going to win. And if you're doing the kind of good and evil thing, I suppose you'd make the Habsburgs be the evil or bad side because it's easier. But you would have this narrative and then it would pan away to Cardinal Richelieu, like looking wistfully into the distance. 
and knowing that within a few years he'd be bringing France into the conflict. And I think that would be a good way to end. And then you could, of course, have a sequel to the film uh, with all about France and all that jazz. But yeah, oh, how have they not made a film yet? They really need to, because that just sounds like, that sounds like the ending of Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it would be the Empire. Oh my God, this is going to work. We have to make this into a film. Yes, um, yes. So... Are there any myths that, or any any misconceptions that you think a lot of people have, or even that you had before writing this book, you've now found aren't necessarily accurate or, or are entirely fabricated? So there's several myths around the Thirty Years' War, and one of the myths I think that really needs to die is that it can be simply classified. Do you know, like that the Thirty Years' War is a religious war, or that it only happened because of Protestants and Catholics being at each other's throats, or that it was a kind of natural result of the Reformation. Like, this idea of, like, inevitability, I think all conflicts, and in a way all events, suffer from this in history. Because we know that they happened, we kind of look upon them as inevitable. But historians on the Thirty Years' War are really adamant that, like, the Thirty Years' War did not have to happen, and that the religious peace which had been set up in 1555, after several years of religious war in the 1500s, don't forget, that that was durable enough. It was just that almost like a perfect storm happened. Kind of like the the assassination of Franz Ferdinand. We can look back on that event and say, oh, well, because the First World War happened, it was always bound to happen. But all it would have taken would have been, like, a more pacific few years for everyone to kind of calm down. And I think had that happened in 1618, people would have probably calmed down a little bit. But uh, as we know, of course, it did not. But yeah, the idea that the Thirty Years' War was inevitable, that it was like a just a religious war, these are things that I think the book hopefully does dispel. But maybe because like they have been dispelled, of course, by other historians before, but there's, still, there's no harm in dispelling them again. The tackling the religious war myth is is pretty straightforward when you just look at the actors involved and you look at the fact that France and Spain were using the Thirty Years' War really as kind of a a battleground for their own interests. And if I was to describe this conflict to people, I would often describe it in kind of national terms, like it's like Austria and Spain against pretty much everyone else, but in reality, it's it's a battle between dynasties, the Habsburg dynasty, the Bourbon dynasty, to a lesser extent, the House of Vasa in Sweden, the House of Orange in the Dutch Republic, that kind of thing. But I think looking at the the political and dynastic conflict between the Spanish and the French really does dispel the myth that it's a, it's a religious conflict. And I think once you dispel the myth that it's a religious conflict, you make the war seem like more of a kind of regular war, if you like. Like, Looking at a kind of religious war might not seem as relatable, it might not seem like it would resonate with us today, but if you see the conflict and a lot of conflicts that came since that that 30 years war, if you look at that as a kind of political conflict, not all that different to the First World War in terms of what was at stake, then I think that's very helpful because you make it more like wars that we're more familiar with, really. Yeah, we can, in the modern world, we can... We can understand political and, and diplomatic reasons for war, whereas the minutiae of doctrine is maybe lost on most people today. Yeah, and, and, and as well as that, like, we understand, like, struggles for power. I mean, you can just see Game of Thrones as a great example. That resonates with people because they understand the idea of families vying for power. And really, it's very similar with the Thirty Years' War. 
you had the Bourbon dynasty and you had the Habsburg dynasty. The Bourbon dynasty was trying to challenge the Habsburg hegemony and uh, the Bourbons were desperately trying to gather as many allies as they could and the Habsburgs were trying to fight against them. So if you paint the picture like that, then it's it seems more interesting and people want to know how these families fought against each other, what intrigues they pursued, how dramatic it was on both sides, how they had ups and downs, all this kind of thing. So Zach, you have you did previously publish a book, um, A Matter of Honour, which is on Britain and the First World War, uh, and that was based on your master's dissertation, I believe. So how was writing For God of the Devil uh, a different experience than writing A Matter of Honour? Well, in a way, the Thirty Years' War was a kind of like, it's something I've always wanted to do on a big scale. I had a bit of a safety net with the previous book because I had that experience of working really ferociously on that particular topic. So then when it came time to do a book, uh, it was really just a matter of putting in all the stuff that I'd had to cut out. So in that sense, it was it was very satisfying with the Thirty Years' War, it started off very intimidating because I knew that I wanted to like make like a really good book. Obviously, you want to go to all this effort. You want it to be good. But because I'd done it before, I also I, I had some experience with like what I did or did not want to kind of like get into really loads of detail on. And I didn't want to like I had this really detailed picture of how the book was going to go. And I ended up just literally doing everything. And that's why the book is so long. Like it was never meant it was never meant to be this big. Like you can find narratives of the Thirty Years' War that are four or five hundred or even three hundred pages. Uh, but for me, I just found that I really had to like initially. Even the price of the book was crazy. Like it just it just grew and grew and grew. And I think that was a challenge in itself because there was no one to tell me, "Hey, this should be like half the size." Because of that, I think I kind of got a bit out of control. But it was also nice to be my own boss in that respect and just cover what I wanted to cover and weave together a narrative in a style and, and in, a, in a format that I really wanted to do. And when you have that much control over your own processes, you start to believe in the finished product more. And that's what I'm really looking forward to because I know it's a big book, so people can only read so quickly. But I'm really looking forward to when people get further through the book and like read ahead of the podcast schedule way into the future and just see what I've done with the likes of like the 1630s or talking about how the piece of Westphalia was arranged, that kind of thing. Like there's so many great stories out there that I was able to really give my time to. And I didn't have to I didn't have to be uh, beholden to anyone, which was dangerous and wonderful at the same time. And I was able to also like give attention to like 17th century warfare. I mean, you might think, oh, maybe you shouldn't do all of that extra stuff at the beginning of a narrative on a really long conflict already. And maybe that would have been a good idea. But I just thought that, you know what, this this kind of stuff isn't often put in such a way that feels accessible or really relevant. So if I can show progression through technology and refer to all these different cases and then hit the main narrative, then maybe people will be like, oh yeah, I remember that character or oh, I remember that battle or that kind of thing. That's my hope anyway. I had more creative control, so I felt like it was more it was more Zach Twomley or Zachary Twomley, as I call myself when I'm writing serious books. Uh, it was more Zachary Twomley than, uh, than Zach Twomley master's kind of dissertation. Like It was just such a breath of fresh air to be able to go my own way with it. It's funny you mention... Um how you cover the development of, of warfare and, and weapons technology, which I found really, really interesting. 
in uh, For God of the Devil and the early episodes of your new revamped series. Thank you for that. And and really, like, when I was... Are you talking about specifically with, like, Maurice of Orange and developing the drill and all that kind of thing? Um, and, like, just getting the weapons together and, and, like, organizing people with the drill manuals and all that kind of stuff. I think that really just... Like, I, I think a big issue with us being unable to kind of visualize it is because whenever anyone talks about musket or pike and shot... They kind of either think really, really early on when there was still like a lot of like knights on the battlefield, that kind of thing, or they think much later to like Napoleonic. I think really this era is very underrepresented in a visual art form. Even just seeing all, if if you got a, a historical kind of, uh, say you did like a, a film or you did like a series on Netflix or whatever, you'd have to have a historical lead or something to 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 advise. And I think even seeing like 17th century warfare in that kind of format would be helpful to us but there isn't there isn't all that many places we can go to see it visualized and i think that is a it's a challenge when you're when you're trying to imagine what it would look like and just like really wading through all the preconceptions you might have that i certainly had and being able to put pen to paper and describe it when you're not 100% sure yourself how it would have looked but you're kind of just like you know, using the research you have at your disposal to to come up with the proper conclusion, it's a challenge. But I, I think that uh, I think that again, and I, I'll say this until the cows come home: this genre is so overdue a proper film or or TV series. It definitely is, and I and to be fair, I think you did a fantastic job making the reader and the listener be able to visualize what these drills actually look like. So, like we said repeatedly, you've already covered the Thirty Years' War on the podcast, and now you're doing it again. And it's not often that podcasters get to retrace their steps and cover the same ground twice. Mm. So I'm curious, has this process revealed anything about your podcasting and how it's developed over the last seven years? Um, I think, and I'm sure you can you can testify to this, I think the longer you do podcasting for, the more confident you get. And when I was starting out initially with 30 Years War, like seven years ago, I mean, I didn't even know how the conflict really ended. That should tell you something about how my schedule worked. I just started researching and just like released scripts about what I knew about it. I didn't really have any vision in my head about... 1618 to 48 I was just like right this is the year we're in and this is what happened and not accounting for what happened later so I mean that's why it can seem very confusing because I was so confused myself but I also had this issue at the time and I remember thinking this distinctively like when I was working on a particular script and I was worried that if I went into too much detail on a specific topic that people would get bored and stop listening but now I've since learned that that's going to happen no matter what you do so if you focus on the things you really enjoy, people will stick around. Sometimes they might not even 100% know what you're talking about. But if you sound passionate and if you sound like you're excited to talk about something, that is far more captivating than listening to someone who sounds like they've been forced at gunpoint to read about reforms in like the Church of England or something like that. Now, that's not to say you couldn't make that interesting if you were really, really interested in that particular topic. But I mean, it's just like, you know... As podcasters, we have to give a certain amount of context. And sometimes in the past, I have worried, hey, am I getting too into too many weeds here? Am I going on too many tangents? That kind of thing. 
And now I think especially with the recent Bismarck series I released too, I just let myself do what I wanted and I let myself approach the story in the way that I wanted to do. And it was like the kind of thing, uh, build it and they will come. If I don't know who said that or, or I, <laughs> the really well-known thing, but I, I just have no idea what, like there's so much stuff I don't know. But the uh, whoever said that, I mean, it's true because you you make, I, I make the podcasts now knowing that I am really enjoying myself and believing that people will be able to like detect that enjoyment and in turn get enjoyment from listening. It's like a circle of enjoyment that just never ends. But because I have these years of podcasting under my belt, I, I kind of know, uh, I, I know myself how, how much detail I would like to get into versus how much I should get into. And I often just go with how much I want to rather than how much I should. I'm basically flouted all the rules since I started podcasting, but it's, uh, it's served me well so far. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's interesting you say that, uh, as long as someone does a good job at going into how the reforms of the church of England go along, it's like, Oh, Zach, you need to keep on listening to Pax Britannica. Oh, there's a, tr- <laughs> there's a treat waiting for you. <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm I'm always interested to hear about the church reforms. I'm not going to lie. I mean, it sounds like I'm not interested. The way I said it, it sounded like I was being sarcastic <laughs> there. But it sounded genuinely... so sarcastic. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, no, I, I love the church reforms. Yeah, Ooh. sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, I genuinely am. I, I I look forward to your podcast immensely every week. So, Zach, to finish off, a simple question. How the hell do you find the time to do all these things? Well, uh, it's a simple question with a whole load of different answers. A lot of it depends upon really just time management, which I know those two words aren't things that people want to hear, but the best way to manage time is to get help from the people around you. And I have to say, like the book is dedicated to her, but my wife Anna has been very good with helping kind of put everything in perspective and giving me the time to we have this joke that when I say I need to record she makes as much noise as she can before I record so that like you know she won't make she won't be tempted to make noise when I am recording it's 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 ridiculous but that's the joke we have um the uh the actual workload I have it might seem overwhelming when a book like Forgot or the Devil comes out and it's like 1200 pages and people are like how on earth are you doing this while doing a PhD etc etc but that book has been in the pipeline for three years and it's only in the last few months that the finishing touches have been put on it so this kind of exposes myself really but uh like I wasn't really working on the 30 years war book while I was doing the PhD I mean it came out at the same time I'll accept all the plaudits for doing it but (laughs) uh to be honest I had this kind of locked down before covid complicated things as well um so that's kind of why there was more of a delay but like generally i i tried to keep things well well enough planned so that in a situation like this now i can use the uh scripts the episodes of the 30 years war that i've already written while i'm in the phd and i change my schedule to bi-weekly so that my listeners still feel love but i don't feel overwhelmed And the same story was with the Patreon series I'm doing called Poland is Not Yet Lost, which is covering Poland in the 1700s. Obviously a very different topic, but again, I did that. I I worked on those scripts three or four years ago because I knew that they would come in handy someday. I didn't quite know when, but I just knew that I was interested in the topic. I knew that it was a subject people were themselves quite interested in, and it doesn't get a lot of attention. 
And it just so happened that Poland is not yet lost was a handy kind of stopgap to put in for patrons uh, while I'm working on the PhD. Because if you know me, you know that I'd love to just devote all my time to doing a massive Bismarck series, but <laughs> time doesn't quite allow it now. But other stuff as well, like I've been very fortunate. I've found some really useful things. So my sister edits the actual episodes. So that saves me a lot of time. Editing is my least favorite part of the podcast process. I don't know about you, Sam, but it drives me nuts. Uh, I really can't stand it. So having that loaded off to someone else is really nice. Another thing I, I benefit from on social media stuff, I have these these accounts. There's this thing called SmarterQ I use, which kind of keeps my social media altogether. So sometimes a thing will be posted on the on the Facebook page at two in the morning Irish time. That doesn't mean I'm awake and posting it. That means that I've <laughs> told the robots to release it at that time. So don't worry about my mental health. I'm fine. But it, it's also important to have uh, to have time off. And I think I've really learned this since starting the PhD that you do sometimes have to respect the fact that Working five days a week should be your limit. And on those two days that you decide to have off, you should have them completely, completely off. And that means not replying to emails, not responding to any kind of messages, sometimes not even going on your own like Facebook page for the podcast or even going in the group on Facebook. You know, just having a complete mental break from all that stuff. Because I think then if you have a proper break, when it comes time to work, then you'll be more motivated uh, but it, it's all about planning, and sometimes the planning works, other times the planning doesn't work. If you listen to some of my older episodes, I make pledges to do things like a newsletter or like a political podcast that I was going to do at one point in 2016, and then I just didn't do it because I didn't have enough time. But you throw things at the wall and, and you see what sticks. Some of them stick a bit later than you'd like, but uh, for, the, <laughs> for the most part, it, it works out fine. And and I I also do have to shout out to my actual listener base as well, who no matter what mistakes I seem to make, even if I do think at some point that New England is a state rather than a regional area, or I say <laughs> I say uh, I mix up tenants and tenants, which I know really is very annoying. But like you know, you make mistakes and people forgive you for it, and then you get to a point where you start to be recognised as more of an expert in your field, and then all those years of hard work pay off. So. It's really about honing your craft and making time and also relying on people around you and eating a lot of chocolate as well, I find helps. All of that could more or less be applied directly to advice for the PhD as well. So thank you yes. very much for that. That's, that's <laughs> twice as useful for me. So, Zach, where can people find For God or the Devil? Well, they can actually, hopefully now, ideally they'd be able to find it in a bookstore near themselves because it's distributed through Simon & Schuster. But I think the best way to go about this would be to go to the publisher's page, which is Wing to Sar Publishing, and you'll find it there. The link is in the description, maybe, of this episode, if I give it to you, Sam, but it's it's in the description (laughs) of all the episodes I've released for the show. You can, of course, get it off Amazon if you would like. I just don't want to give Jeff Bezos any money at all. Uh, And sometimes there's issues with it being in stock or out of stock on Amazon, but it's always in stock with the publisher. So head on over there if you would like to buy the book. I am on the publisher's website at the moment. I can confirm it is on there. And it is on Amazon as well. But yeah, go for the publisher first because sod Jeff Bezos. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Thank you so much, Zach, for coming on. This This has been so fun. 
It's been great fun, and I genuinely am looking forward to having you on When Diplomacy Fails podcast as well in the future when you can talk to us about the Church of England reforms in more detail. <laughs> I, would, I would never dream of subjecting your listeners to that. <laughs> I'll find some other inane topic to, to bore them with. It's fine. Oh, please I have do. So, I have so many options. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, Sam. It's been a pleasure to join you. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories. Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, Join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Impressive, because I, I had it stuck with me. I think at one point, no, I won't, I won't be that. I was going to say the EU4 realizing that Mauritian was based on Morris of Nassau. <laughs> I just remember no. like, suddenly clicking going, oh, that's what that means. Oh, I get, I get that. Like EU4 has just been opened up to me now that I know more of the actual stuff behind it. I'm still terrible at the game, but uh, I, I do appreciate it much more. I'm also terrible at the game. I've played it too much. I'm terrible at it. It's it's so much fun, though. Oh, it's great. It really and, is. like, I, I have a lot of patience for it, and I have a lot of patience for all the bad history it creates, because it also gets people interested in history. So. It's true, yeah. Even with all that border gore, it's still great. Even with all the border gore. With the border gore, have you seen the latest? This is so off topic. We're... I need to be a better interviewer, but I want to ask, like, have you have you seen it since the Emperor update, since the Austria update? No, I haven't. Did they change the HRE? Yes, it's the whole the whole patch was basically about the HRE. Wow. Um, to the point that it was really like they clearly didn't bug test it because within like ten years, everyone from Portugal to Novgorod was part of the empire because they just wanted to join. <laughs> it was completely broken. It was hilarious. Wow. Um, but amazing. yeah, added loads of different places. That I, mm. I hadn't even heard of. It's really quite cool. It's worth cool. looking into. Yeah. Anyway, this is not an EU4 pod, uh, podcast. Not um, yet. <laughs> not yet. Give it time. Uh, but we should have we should have a game at some point. That would be fun. Definitely. I'm really looking forward to Crusader Kings three as well. Oh, I'm, I'm I've really... not looked. At, I have not looked into it that much. I don't oh. know why. I, Crusader Kings two was like my favorite game for years. Oh, Sam, you'll love it. You really gotta. You really gotta check that out.
I'm gonna have to cut all of that out. <laughs> I, you can put it. You can put it in the end. I mean, I'm that sure could be quite nice. Yeah. Little, little peek behind the curtain about these two history nerds that like to play games. Yeah, I'm sure they could have told from our own nerdiness that we probably. Oh are god, yeah. Super I keep, into the game. I keep posting screenshots on Twitter and like people I know do not play games are very like politely liking it. It's just like you have no <laughs> idea what I'm posting. Oh, <laughs> uh, um, okay. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.